Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Poetry People and Things channel. I'm your host, Megan Wildhood, and I have uh, a guest I am so excited to talk to today. Uh, we have Linda Nemec Foster. We met at the AWP in Seattle um, in March, uh, last March, March 2023, depending on when you're listening to this. And I uh, got to get a signed copy of her book, Bone Country, which we're going to talk about today. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and introduce her. She, uh, Linda Nemec Foster, has published 12 collections of poetry, including Amber Necklace from Dansk, finalist for the Ohio Book Award in Poetry, Talking Diamonds, and The Lake Michigan Mermaid, 2019 Michigan Notable Book, which was created with co-author Anne-Marie Oman, who appeared on this channel as well, and artist Meredith Riddle. Her work appears in magazines and journals, such as The Georgia Review, Nimrod, New American Writing, North American Review, Verse Daily, Paterson Liter Literary Review, Witness, and the 2022 Best Small Fictions Anthology. She has received over 30 nominations for the Pushcart Prize and awards from the Arts Foundation of Michigan, National Writer's Voice, Dyer Ives Foundation, The Poetry Center, New Jersey, Fish Anthology, Ireland, and the Academy of American Poets. In 2021, her poetry book, The Blue Divide, was published by New Issues Press and received a featured review in Publishers Weekly. A new collection of prose poetry, Bone Country, was published in 2023 after being honored as a finalist in several national competitions. Recently, she was invited to read an award-winning selection from Bone Country at the West Cork Literary Festival in Ireland. The first Poet Laureate of Grand Rapids, Michigan, 2003 to 2005, Foster is the, found the founder of the Contemporary Writers Series at Aquinas College. Linda, I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, Megan, I am so pleased to be with you and be your guest for today. It, it was a delight to see you at AWP in Seattle in March. We really hit it off, I think, in a lot of different ways. But um, I really uh, admire you and your work and your energy, and I'm so glad to be part of it. Thank you, Megan. Oh, thank you so much. I Yes, we really did. We had a, a energy synergy in, in AWP. <laughs> at the uh, Cornerstone Press table, which is the press that is uh, has released Bone Country. That's the book we're going to focus on today, uh, prose poems. Um, I love a good prose poem. So how much better to have over 80 of them in this collection? Um, so I uh, wanted to start uh, by asking you about the inspiration for this collection. Um, as readers, when readers read it, they'll probably be able to guess some of the inspiration, but I'd love for you to talk about kind of the backstory behind these okay. stories. Wonderful, and there is a story. Um, Bone Country is a series of around 90 uh, prose poems, 
all from other parts of the world. Uh, the voice is American. The voice uh, narrating this this book has a distinct American voice with a Midwestern sensibility, but they are not about America. They are about all the other places in the world. And basically the inspiration was before COVID, my husband and I did a lot of traveling. Um, all my family is from Southern Poland. Uh, so I have a lot of relatives in Central Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, even near the Ukrainian border. We'll talk a little bit about that later. But um, so I've been to Poland, for instance, 10 times visiting, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins, um, all four of my grandparents were born in Southern Poland, immigrated to the United States before World War One. So my parents, my mom and dad were born in America, but all four of my grandparents, my mother's parents, my father's parents were born, you know, in, in Poland. So I have a strong connection there and also a strong connection of, of travel because this, this book uh, takes you from Rome to Istanbul, to Greece, to Ireland, to Spain, um, to, you know, uh, Vienna and Prague and Krakow and Gdansk and Warsaw, a Ukrainian border I mentioned. So um, when we were traveling and I uh, began really being an international traveler in 1995, when we went to Italy for the first time, and I decided to keep little travel journals. Here's the backstory of the backstory. So I had these travel journals and I would write constantly like long entries every day uh you know 10 12 14 pages and they were boring they were boring they they were these like this is what i ate by the trevi fountain and oh man wow was it a good pizza you know just very i think i wanted to write this t wonderful brilliant masterpiece of travel writing and it wasn't happening you know i'm a poet it just was not happening they were long you know uh you know, put you to sleep kind of stuff. And I also found at the same time, I was not paying attention to the landscape. I was so obsessed with writing in the journals that I wasn't paying attention really to the landscape around me. So after a while, um, because that was the first trip we went to uh, Europe and just in Italy, 95 and then in 96, I went to Poland for the first time to visit relatives. And I subsequently, I've been there, you know, nine other times. But once I got to that second trip, I thought, Linda, you cannot do this vast, sonorous, boring travelogue. And I gave myself a little assignment like I do sometimes with my students. I said, all right, Linda, one page a day, just one page and about one thing, either a person, a scent, a color, a landscape, a, a dog, you know, a flower, but concentrate on one thing. And that opened me up. That took the burden out from my shoulders of having to create this masterwork of travel writing and just concentrate on the here and now and, you know, write uh, a bit in my journal, but just one page a day. And that's how they became these prose poems. And by the end of all our, not the end of our travels, because I'm, as a matter of fact, I'm going back to Poland this summer. I'm going to talk a little bit about that to the Ukrainian border to do creative writing workshops uh, in 
uh, opposition to Russia's, Russia's war. So I'm going to be in, involved with that, but I'll, we'll talk about that a bit later. But getting back to the genesis of these prose poems, so I ended up with about 150, and I had like several different um, you know, journals. I mean, I could show you, but it, that you, you don't want to see that. But several different journals. Some of them were complete, some were not complete, but I ended up with 150 pieces. And then I'm thinking, what do I do with 150 drafts? They weren't even, you know, typed yet. So um, I found myself a wonderful mentor here in Michigan. I live in Grand Rapids, which is the west side of Michigan, um, across from, you know, Detroit on the east side. And there's this wonderful uh, poet writer, Kathleen McGookie. She lives near, uh, near Grand Rapids, and she is so masterful when it comes to the prose poem. As a matter of fact, she blurbed Bone Country. She's one of the bloopers. So I went to her and I said, you know, I'm willing to pay you. I'm willing to pay you for your expertise. And uh, I told her about this project and I said, but I need someone to rope it in. I have 150 of these. I need someone to help me rope it in because I do need uh, discipline every now and then. You know, I'm the kind of person, you know, oh, if I don't have to do it, I won't do it. So <laughs> I mean, I need, I need that structure. So in talking with Kathleen, she said, I'd love to do it. So we set up a plan and I would meet with her every other week. So about twice a month, we would meet at a bookstore coffee house here in town and I would type up from my journals, I would type up anywhere from three to five pieces at a, at a session, and I would bring them to her typed. I mean, I didn't want to show her, you know, all the scribbles of the journal, but I would all, kind of uh, semi-revise them as I was typing, but then we got to the deep revision when I would meet with her uh, every other week, and we'd go through these, and some of them worked, and some of them didn't, but uh, we worked from February of 2016 until August of 2019. And then the uh, in 2020, the pandemic hit. So that was a, a done deal. But uh, also why I wanted to be done by August of 2019 is in October of 2019, I was invited to spend a month in Poland and I was invited to be the poet in residence at a wonderful university in Southern Poland, almost near the Czech border, the border with the Czech Republic. And the name of the city is Bielsko Biała. Sounds very pretty. Bielsko Biała. And it's the sister city in Poland of Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids has like five sister cities around the world, uh, Ghana and Africa and Japan, Italy, Mexico and Poland. So Bielskobiawa uh, is the sister city. And because of that, there was a definite connection. And the mayor of Bielskobiawa uh, welcomed me. As a matter of fact, um, he gave me this beautiful apartment for free that was in the city center and all these wonderful food, food vouchers for meals at the, these wonderful restaurants, uh, a brewery and a wine bar and all these wonderful restaurants within walking distance. And I said, I accept all of these gifts if only my husband can come with me. Yes. <laughs> he a personal assistant who, thank God, was already retired by then. So he was my driver. He was my, uh, and we had this beautiful apartment where we could make breakfast for ourselves and, and, you know, other meals if we weren't, you know, dining out with our food vouchers. But anyway, so if I knew I was going to be teaching in Poland in October of 2019, I wanted to finish this project. 
with working on the revisions with Kathleen Maguki uh, before that. So I said, how about in August? We finish up and we did. And the big part is we had 90. All right. She says, let's stop at 90. But I said, I, I have like 150. I have 60 more rough drafts in my journal. She said, no, let's stop at 90. See where we are. And then the uh, really um, challenging part was sequencing it. What do you put first? What do you put second? And the, the first poem in the collection is Tea in Istanbul because I take you to Istanbul. And what was interesting about that day, I saw in this Muslim country, a man with a Mohawk, which is very unusual. In a, in a, in a, and he wasn't a foreigner. He wasn't from France or London. He was a Turkish, but he was in front of this restaurant and hotel hawking, trying to get people in the door to buy a beer or whatever. And I was just so fascinated with, his shtick, you know, what he was doing to get people, you know, into the restaurant that um, I, I didn't go in at the time. But later that day, I went to the bar restaurant next door and I just watched him. And the whole, the whole theme, one of the themes in Bone Country is just being observant, paying attention, because isn't that what art is all about? Whether you are a poet, a writer, a musician, a visual artist, a dancer, a playwright, you just pay attention to the world around you. And that's what I was not doing in these long travelogues. But when I got to the prose poem part, that's when it clicked. That's when the magic happened with the form and the content. So uh, the, the book begins with tea in Istanbul because it's got the theme of just paying attention and the whole 90 pages is about uh, observing, and yet the voice is the other. You know, in America, we talk about, oh, the other, that foreigner, that migrant, that with the foreigner. And in the book, the American is the outsider, which is an interesting tension. All throughout, it's an American voice, but they don't belong. And so how are they managing this landscape? And even when I go back to Poland, where all my grandparents are from, unfortunately, I don't know the language that well. And it's a real loss. That loss of language is, is a loss, not to be redundant. But uh, so there's that other layer, too, of not quite fitting in, even though you're going back to the land of your ancestors, you still don't quite belong. So that that's part of uh, the the pieces too. But so there's a lot of Central and Eastern Europe there. But there's also again, you know, Ireland and Spain and and Italy and um, yeah. So that is uh, in in a nutshell, maybe a large nutshell. That's the genesis of the prose poems. Yeah. That's, that's the genesis oh yes. Of you definitely take us uh, on a on a travel. Uh, it is it's a travel log, and I really do feel that as the reader, um, uh, you really captured this, this um, I'm the other, but in an inviting way, not as a, um, like an ac accusation, like that's sometimes you pointed out when you use in our country here, well, but exactly. And uh, here's another thing that someone said on another podcast, this man was really impressed with the empathy and there is no judgment. Yeah, right. There's That's what it, no yeah. judgment. There is no judgment against the narrator. There is no judgment against 
what they're commenting on, even the the, the prostitutes or the, the guy watching pornography. There is no judgment, but there is this, as the other podcaster said, there is this empathy for everyone and everything that you encounter in bone country. Yeah. I, I definitely felt, yeah, invite. It was very, I felt like it was really piquing my curiosity because I, mm-hmm. It's like, wow. I mean, I've I've been to a lot of places in Europe, but I haven't there are many places in this book I haven't been to. And it was it was an invitation to to learn. And it was this window. It was the the poems are pointing towards these like, look at this interesting thing and look at this interesting thing. And what what might be the backstory here? And just these little. So I can I can tell that it's um, the, the discipline of one page and pick one thing really, really opened up this world of curiosity. And it's out there. And, you know, I have, you know, I don't want to say a boring life, but, you know, here I am in West Michigan and I clean my litter box, not my litter, my cat's litter box. I, our cat ghosty, you know, I, I, you know, feed the cat and I change the water. I change the litter box and I do this and I look through the junk mail and I look through my email. And, and yet when you get away from that, universe man does it open it up it it opens up not only the world but it opens up yourself to that world for instance when you mentioned um how many things there is to know in gdansk which is a northern poland now that's not where my family is all from southern poland near krakow which a lot of people know about that's in the south of uh poland but in gdansk which is right on the baltic coast so it's northern poland they have an old medieval jail a jail that they transformed into an amber museum and it's all this and i write about it in the book the amber museum and it's um really fascinating these huge pieces of amber that washed ashore on the Baltic coast. And people don't know that amber comes in hundreds of colors. It's not just the amber of cognac or like a, a, a deep um, gold amber. There's black amber and green amber and red amber and white amber. Uh, I mean, black amber, it's, it's amazing. So who knew? And so that's just one little, you know, tidbit, but, uh, it was uh, fascinating for me not only to learn about these other places in the word world, Megan, but to learn about myself in the context of those places. So totally, that's and that's how I I think it's um, something. Uh, there's this old writing advice I can't remember where I first heard it that says the um, the more particular, the more universal, and. So even though I um, I have not been to Poland, I haven't been to uh, Istanbul. I've only been mostly to Western Europe. Um, I was these 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 poems. They're um, when they're they're especially when they're talking about the Muslim wife, or they're talking about um, these these places and people. Um, I have not had a lot of contact with in in my life. I've really it it still served as as a a mirror and a way for me to know more about myself as well and i think it's because they were so particular and that so that really showed through here you said one thing about um language and how um it can be the loss of language can um can sort of provide this this distance even in places that are you're like this is my heritage this is where all like both of your parents are 100% Polish, even if they were born here. But when you go to Poland, you're like, oh, am I the outsider now, though? 
And I just, um, there are definitely, there's many poems in here about, about language. Um, and you mentioned the Tower of Babel. Uh, oh, yes, the Tower the, um, of Babel, right. The right, poem right. called My Tower of Babel, it's especially right. talks about the role of language in misunderstanding as well as connection with family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And I feel like it's uh, like different language and then differences in language. Um, yeah come up a lot in yeah. this collection. And there is this wonderful quote by the great Polish poet who has has passed and she won the Nobel Prize, Wisława Zimborska. And there's this little quote by her in one of the, um, I, I think my Tower of Babel, one of those pieces. And she mentioned this to Ed Hirsch. Ed Hirsch went to visit her in Krakow, Poland after she won the Nobel. And I think it was the New York Times Magazine wanted him to um, uh, interview her. And of course, she doesn't speak that well in English. And Ed Hirsch, the great poet and critic Ed Hirsch, doesn't speak Polish that well. They had an interpreter, they had a translator. But when she first met him, she said something beautiful. She said, oh, what can we do with language? What can we do? The Tower of uh, Babel has done this to us. And I thought it was such a wonderful quote. And I, I use that. I use that. I can't remember which which of those uh, two poems, but maybe it's my Tower of Babel when I put that in, that little um, uh, epigraph from her. But it was the perfect quote. And I read that years ago. And I, I remembered it. I wrote it down in another notebook thinking, one of these days, I'm going to use that. For, I don't know which one yet, but that was just the, the, the perfect um, gateway to that whole idea of the language, what you have and what you don't have. Yes. And that longing for connection, I sense in that, oh, the Tower of Babel has done this to us. Otherwise, we could be free. We could I be free could to connect. Yeah. That's so yeah. touching. Yeah. Oh, that's so touching. Um, said something, too, about this is what it means to be an artist. It means to pay attention. And it's uh, I, I noted a line here in uh, the poem from Conjuring Her Face. And it says, look at these. He, the artist, shows her. I know you. Eventually, she starts to believe the evidence, as if she never lived her life, as if the blood of her ancestors never left his country. This paying attention to one thing, one page thing, that is that shows so much about identity because you you're the one who picks the subject and you're the one who says, I'm only going to write a page about one thing. And I would love for you to sort of talk about like, where, where do you think identity comes from? This, this whole collection is about um, focusing and, and inviting the reader to focus on this thing versus this thing. Cause when you're focusing on this, you have to say no to everything else. And so like, yeah, is it, and this, this line too plays with the question of is identity a recognition by another person, even if it disregards the backstory of the person? Or is it the backstory? Is it both? Yeah, I'd love for you to sort of talk about, especially being Polish, but feeling distance in Poland. Right, right, right. And it's funny because, you know, I am an American. You know, I was born here. I was born in Cleveland, but you know, I'm definitely a, a Polish American in in how I was, you know, raised in my ethnicity, my heritage. But the whole idea of where you are, where you've come from, where you think you're going is, I mean, it, I think it's so fluid and it's a combination of so many things. And I think 
the the more we progress, I hope as a civilization, I hope we're progressing, but sometimes I don't know. Sometimes I don't know, Megan, you know, with what's going on in the world today. But you you hope that all the things that influence you, because it's not just here, you know, there, there's always that um, combination or that, uh, uh, you know, argument, is it nature or nurture? You know, there is, there is you, but there are so many other things that shape you. And I think it's all, all of the above. It's all of the above. When you talk about identity, it's just not, you know, who you think you are. It's who other people think you are too. And that just layers of the individual so I don't like to put it you know like the identity in one box there uh, you know I'm also a, a mother I'm a grandmother but um all of those things combine to make who I am and what I am and um that is you know part of the whole package and I think if you think that way that releases you from having to be just one thing all the time, you know, just know that um, uh, just like the, the prose poem can be so fluid because people want to know, well, you know, is that really poetry? What's going on here? You know, what's, what's the language? But um, the whole idea of the form is it's very fluid, whether it be flash fiction, micro fiction, prose poem, uh, it, lyric essay. Uh, sometimes it all depends on what the editor wants and with the word count. But getting back to the content of identity I really do believe that it is such a combination of very many different layers. And um, I like that. I love the fact that this Serbian artist, you know, can we go back? And actually, it's based on somebody. There are, I'm not going to say who, there are six pieces in Bone Country that are about, um, uh, most of them, are famous male poets, writers, artists. There is one that's really desperate to be famous, but he ain't. And but he's in here. He's in here anyway, <laughs> desperately. But um, so people are trying to figure out who are they. I'm not. Maybe on my deathbed I will, but I'm not saying. But yeah, they're um, uh, they're they're all uh, not. There's like six you know, six pieces that reflect these personalities, but it, it they're all male and ego play, plays a part in their, their voices in these poems. And uh, yeah. And um, um, all of them have passed except the guy who's desperately wanting to be famous. That's all I'm going to say. I love that too, because that is, that's also an interesting um, aspect of identity is what is not known and what what makes people want to know what makes people so want to know the identity what will change if we know the identity of these people will we what will change about the poem if we know versus if we don't know right right but uh, anyway um all these again about identity all these um, uh, uh people um uh have a past, except for the one, as I mentioned, and there are two that are not American, and they come across as I don't want to say the most, you know, benign or positive, but uh, not as um, obsessed with fame as the the others who are definitely American. So, 
for instance, uh, I'll just blurt it out there because uh, it, the, the name is, is not right, but there's a dear friend and colleague of mine who has the book, and there is a one prose poem called The Dead American Poet in Rome. And my friend thinks it's got to be Ezra Pound. No, it's not. It's not Ezra. It's not Ezra Pound. Uh, I said, no, I never knew Ezra Pound. And all these you know, cloaked identities. I love this. The cloaked identities of these people. Um, there are they are uh, people that I've met. You know, in, in my lifetime, in in some way, shape, or form that I've. Uh, yeah. yeah, it really it seemed to me as as though the the speaker um, was in in each of the poems was pretty consistent throughout, and it was um, it was not quite. I don't want to say autobiographical, but it seemed that that the depth of experience I got as a reader. Um, was it was like oh it's most most likely that this is this is you are the speaker you are speaking from experience and inviting the reader into that experience um because it's even, such and, a rich experience yeah. and uh you know sometimes i i do have the eye very definitely in the pieces and sometimes it's just the woman or sometimes it's just anonymous but there is still that that thread of uh recognition and identity of the uh a writer that comes through yeah yes and that that I felt I felt like even as I felt like the other I felt like oh but there's somebody else who is the the speaker in the poems that is guiding me through this also as somewhat of an other even though they're the speakers closer because they've had more experience and so I felt like there was this companion as I was reading alongside kind of saying hey I found this thing let's look at this thing and um, what do you think is going on with this? What's what's up here? And it was so I mean, there was there's definitely some there's very serious, serious material in here because World War Two comes up a lot. And as as it would in a book inspired um, a lot by by Poland um, and Polish history, um, that there was just a lot of playfulness, too. I felt that uh, this the speaker is just excited to share what what she has experienced with the reader. And I just I love that. I felt I felt that as I was reading, um, even even in the serious, uh, the very the serious poems and the serious parts of the poems uh, that talk about there was there are some us. Uh, I don't know what the right word is. Spirituality maybe comes up a lot in this uh, book, including this one. Um, it's called From Man Praying in a Field. It says, barely remembering who he is, he will walk away each foot lightly blessing the ground so this is about identity in that he doesn't remember who he is because he's been lying in a field praying and i'm like he's in the zone yeah he's, in, he's been in the zone for a long time and and that was inspired by a black and white photograph and there was a sequence of of photographs that was in i believe it was granta magazine the wonderful journal out of the uk and a friend of mine saw this portfolio about um, uh, oh, Poland, like in the 80s, like when it was still like right after, right before solidarity was going to come up. And it was still kind of post post-Soviet, but not yet free of of um, uh, communism. And they were maybe, I want to say, uh, 10 or 12 of these uh, photographs in this portfolio and they were haunting. They were haunting. And there was one of a man and he had a suit on 
and he was just um, a very devout. Uh, he looked like um, like a very, uh, uh, let's say, a very devout believer. And I don't know if he was Catholic or Orthodox, but he's in this field and it's just him in this barren field and he's on his stomach and like splayed out. And the title is Man Praying in a Field. And I'm thinking, I've never seen prayer like that before. So uh, I, I just wanted to say, well, I wanted to think like, what is it about, you know, and he looked so devout and he was just, you know, of course, it was a still photograph. He was just, you know, almost frozen in time. And I, you know, but he was in a suit. He was in a nice suit with, you know, dark shoes. And it's like, wow, what's, what's, what's up with this? So, um, and, you know, traveling through that part of the world, you know, Central Europe, you see these vast fields. I mean, that's why Ukraine is considered the breadbasket of Europe. I mean, these big fields and, and in Poland too, um, it's, it's now becoming more, of a um, more people are living in the big cities than they did even 30 or 40 years ago. But it's a, it, for a long time, it was an agricultural economy, not so much anymore, but still in Poland, you have long stretches of landscape because I've been from the South Eastern part near the Ukrainian border, which is Jeshuv. I had a cousin who used to live there and it's spelled R Z E S. Z-O-W, but it's pronounced Jeshuf. You know, don't ask me why, but that's the Polish pronunciation. And when Biden had that surprise visit to Kiev a couple of months ago, like a month ago, he you know, went to Kiev and no one knew about it. He actually flew into Jeshuf, Poland, because that's a major city which has become a refugee hub for the Ukrainian refugees. And then he took the long train ride, 10 hour train ride from Jeshuf, Poland into Ukraine and Kiev to meet with Zelensky. But um, so I have been from Jeshuf, Ukraine, all the way from the southeast, all the way to the northwest, which is near Gdansk, where actually World War One started in that city, September 1. 39. But so I have traversed that whole country, east, west, north, south, mountains to the Baltic uh, shore, mountains in the south, Baltic shore, the, uh, the uh, north. And I'm just struck by just the rolling hills. There's a lot of plains. There's a lot of fields. There's a lot of, um, I don't want to call it prairie because it's not prairie like we have, you know, here in America, but just an amazing landscape of um, different colors and shapes you you only have the mountains in the south uh but you have a lot of lakes you have a lot of rivers and so to see a picture you know uh from poland in the 80s with this man in one of the fields that i've you know looked at countless times in my 10 visits to poland to see him just lying there what does that mean about spirituality and being connected to the divine and the poem talk the piece talks about you know uh, long before, you know, uh, the invention of uh, the creation of man on a ceiling in Rome, meaning the Sistine Chapel, long before we, we had cathedrals and churches, we had this. We had people, you know, connected to the earth. And, and who knows, maybe he's he's a uh, he, you know, worships the earth, you know, who knows. But I was just so uh, struck by his devotion and he was like totally still, and it almost looks like you know he was dead, but you know he's not. He he gets up and leaves. 
So uh, at any rate, uh, that is, you know, uh, uh, like a window into that particular piece of, of how that came to be. Just seeing this man in, in fields that I visited many times when I was over there. Yes. And just that, that he was in a suit. It was just yes, like, with it was amazing. Amazing. I, it just, that there are many pictures of, of spirituality and how that, as you say, devotion to the divine, whatever concepts um, that is being, that is being portrayed here. There's so many pictures that come up in, in throughout this book. Um, another one that I noted here is it's um, this is, this is, this is a stunning uh, I wrote, it's a, almost the whole poem I wrote down. Um, it's the, the poem is the UFO in, I'm going to say this Katowice, wrong. Kata, yeah, uh, Katowice, Katowice. Katowice, Poland. Yeah. yeah. And it says, who can make sense out of anything except the rational non-believers? <laughs> Soon, mathematical formulas will prove everything, even the non-existence of the soul and the ultimate myth of free will and why children die and wonderful things happen to rotten people. You can't explain any of this with God. So says the atheist from Katowice as she dismisses the UFO in the middle of the city and sleeps with her dead mother's crucifix hanging from her bedroom wall. So even the atheists believe in the atheists, they, they want to, you know, hedge their bet. You know, they want to make sure that just in case, and you want to know, I, I read, uh, th this is a poem that I'm, I think I'm still writing, not for a continuation of Bone Country, but, uh, but another, like a lineage. And there is, so I hear, that the Vatican even has a game plan when the aliens land. They just want to hedge their bets. Just like the atheist is hedging her bet, I got to get this crucifix just in case. And here, I read it. You know, that maybe I read it online and it was some tabloid thing, but it was really fascinating that the Vatican in their protocol and like their secret archives has a file like just in case the UFO lands at St. Peter's, we have a game plan. We know how we're going to figure this out and say, oh, um, yeah, it wasn't just Adam and Eve, but there were Adam and Eves everywhere in the universe. <laughs> you know, God, God was there everywhere. But so I thought that was very interesting that somewhere in their archives, they have a game plan to meet the aliens and see the UFO and say, okay, okay, yeah, we, uh, we're, yeah, we're, good <laughs> we're good with that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, that that is that is very interesting. It's, it's like people... We, we have this uh, very tenuous relationship with certainty, it seems, um, because he, the, the Vatican is, is very certain about certain things. And so so it presents itself just like the church, just like all the, the major world religions are. We are very sure about this, this, this and this. And then there's the fire insurance like, well. Just in case. I love that. I love that the fire insurance, like, but then there, there's a little footnote, just in case, like in case of fire, you'll break the glass and get a fire extinguisher out. You just in case. But I, I love that comparison, Megan, about the fire insurance. Yes, it's so it's so funny. Humans are just so funny. It's yep, we yep, don't yep. want to admit uncertainty. And yet I found that the moment I do when I admit 
uh, uncertainty when I say I don't know after pretending like I do for so long or having this air of, of independence and not needing I, I know all the things the minute I let that down and say I don't know that's when connection happens I feel like like I connected with this woman who is uh she 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 believes pretty much the opposite of what I believe um you know, I'm I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I I think you can explain some of this with God, and yet I really, really connected with her the minute I learned that she sleeps with her dead mother's crucifix hanging from her bedroom wall, and tries to pretend like she doesn't see the UFO. Right. In the right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> loved it. I loved that so much, and it just the empathy, as you mentioned before, the empathy um, piece that comes up in this is I just. I felt so much empathy and I also felt that I was receiving empathy as the reader, as I was going through these poems, um, just offering the, the poems were offering me things like, oh, you haven't had a chance to experience this in your life. I would love to share this with you. And that just felt very compassionate to me. Um, as I, I have never, I've never been, uh, to Poland. I, I, I mean, I've only, the closest I've gotten to Eastern Europe is East Germany and, um, much, I mean, to early 2000s. So, um, I mean, I know the, the history, but it's so, it, I mean, it wasn't quite like being there obviously, but it was, it was enough that I was like, I want to go to these places now and get a bigger taste. And, and I just love hearing that, you know, from you, Megan, because, um, a lot of people, as you said earlier, you know, West European history, and it's just, different and it's in europe it's europe it's not asia or you know something. i mean it's europe but it's it's a different europe it's a, a different um uh almost tonality there's just a different tone a different vibe but um i i just love it and not only because i'm partial for my ethnic heritage but there's just something about the place that is really um amazing and one little sidebar in Krakow, there is one of the seven chakras. I think there's seven or eight uh, sacred places in the whole world. And Krakow has one, and it's near the royal castle. It's near where the, the castle of the kings and the uh, royal cathedral is now. But every now and then you see uh, pilgrimages or pilgrims from uh, who believe in you know Eastern religion, uh, I, I, Hinduism, and and they hear about where the chakra is, and you could see them praying, you know, uh, near the courtyard of the, uh, the Krakow's royal castle. Yeah, very interesting. So it is uh, quite an amazing place. I'm partial to southern Poland near Krakow, which is my favorite city in the world. I mean, uh, hands down, I, I loved Istanbul and Rome, and you know, uh, Galway and um, you know Barcelona, but. I mean, Krakow is my favorite. My top three favorite cities, uh, uh, Krakow, Istanbul, and Rome are my top my top three for a lot of different reasons. But um, uh, so that was interesting that one of the uh, sacred chakras uh, is is in the earth around Krakow. It's, you know, emanating its, its vibe and energy. But um, uh, that is, I, I know where, as the uh, Serbian artist says, that's where my blood is from. <laughs> yes. That's, That's oh, I love that. I love that. Oh, yes. I think, yeah. Um, when you mentioned the the sacred cities of the world, there this collection I noticed as I was reading is um pretty saturated with like celestial imagery and 
and ideas like that. So is that, was that a conscious thing or did that sort of creep in? I know sometimes as writers, we un, we unconsciously put I, stuff I, in the writing. I think it's a lot of it is unconscious, but I love the idea of the, the, the constellations and of the, 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 the heavenly spheres. I mean, I really like that, but there is so much of um, my work that I'm not even um, aware of the result until someone points it out to me. Like, look at that. For instance, uh, one of my favorite pieces, and it's a, a longer piece. I might, well, longer, it's a whole page as opposed to a half a page of the book. Uh, on the other side of the world, and there are four little vignettes, and they take place in a flamenco bar in Seville, Spain, a city park in Krakow, uh, a train station in Vienna, and uh, it ends up in a restaurant in Romania where the waiter brings her horseradish and um because she she you know the the uh the voice the narrator wants horseradish for her meal at any rate but uh this is the arc and i didn't realize the arc in this one piece until i was reading it a number of times for the book launches the book just came out last month so um i'm looking at that piece and it begins by saying two sisters go to a flamenco bar after they bury their father and, uh, you know, it's, it's not like, oh, uh, two men go into a bar, you know, a rabbi and a minister. It's, it's, so it's not setting up a, a joke, but it's, it begins, two sisters go to a flamenco bar after they bury their father. And it's, it's in uh, Seville, Spain, Sevilla, Spain. And the very end of that piece, after you get down to the fourth small vignette in the restaurant in Romania, and the waiter serves her horseradish in a little coffin of pure glass, a little glass coffin. You know, it's 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 not like a little bowl of horseradish. It's a little glass coffin. And I realize here is the arc of death from the two sisters going to the bar in Spain after they bury their father to that little glass coffin filled. You know, it's got a little lid on it, and it's filled with horseradish. You know, and what the what does the raider say? The last line of that piece is, "Be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for, because you never know. You know, what, yeah, you might get the little glass coffin. You know, you might think that oh, what I want, what I want over there is really better than what I have over here, and maybe not necessarily. So, as a matter of fact, most of the time, it's not. <laughs> you know, so." Most of the time, wanting you know that that cliche, the grass is always greener on the other side, and maybe not. Yeah, right, right. Um, I uh, we also talked about uh, a lot of of net nature imagery. Um, I uh, there was I wrote uh, some uh, line here from the cloud sleeps on the mountain, which is just that was just such a beautiful like line image just the perfect title for this. And it was, this was one where I, uh, an, a good example of uh, why I felt so invited as a reader into these little worlds um, was it says, do you see it? The mountain beyond the valley as transported from another dream, the heavy mist covering its silent gray head as if a cloud just escaped the mouth of God to find peace to fall asleep, to escape the mouth of God, to find peace, to fall asleep. I read that twice because it's like, 
I saw that. I saw it as I was reading it to escape that roiling imagination. And it's like, just what I, what, what do you think it is about nature that's so reliably captivates humans throughout the centuries and across the world? And because it is pure art without trying. Nature, you could be on this, nature is pure art without trying. It's just there. And you know, um, I love art. I think I'm a frustrated visual artist that not that did not get beyond stick people. Can't you know, write. I I can't uh, draw beyond stick people. My um, wonderful um, daughter is a, a great visual artist, but I I don't have it. And she she got the gift. I don't. But um, so when I look at art, and I've done a lot of ekphrastic work in my in my life, a lot of writing poems uh, inspired by visual art. And, um, uh, you know, I, and maybe that that's like a reflection of how I, you know, like to be a visual artist. I can't be one, so I'll write about it. I'll be inspired by it. But beyond the visual art, it is nature that just blows my mind because you could just be walking outside and view a sunset that no one, not even Monet, could capture. And that's pure art. art. And I'll have a little segue here um, because there are some uh, films that I think are pure art. Uh, I, I, we really love watching TCM. That's like the only channel I'll, I'll watch TCM. And last night they had uncut uh, version, the uncut version of Un Unforgiven, the Western that uh, uh, Clint Eastwood starred in, produced, directed. I think in, it was in the early... A 90s, I think, mid 90s. And at the very end of the movie, before they roll the credits, there is uh, a shot of a landscape and it's uh, Clint Eastwood in the background and he's standing by his wife's grave and there's his little shack of a house, there's laundry on the line, there's him by the uh, grave and there's this magnificent sunset in the back. And it's such a stunning image and you see it for a long time as a Credits are rolling. And I told my husband, I said, look at that. Look at that image. And it's pure art. It is, I mean, the colors were magnificent. And we can see this all the time, just outside our door. We could see magnificent sunsets or sunrises or even maybe not that, you know, over the top magnificent. Maybe it's the small, beautiful little crocus that's coming up coming up in the midst of everything it still rises you know the nature still rises after you know devastation and they even say even around chernobyl that had an awful accident what 19 like march april 1986 1986 and and yeah and um you know uh stuff is growing there now how does that work how does that happen so uh, the, the whole idea of nature to me is art without trying. It's just there. And, and I, I love it. And, you know, uh, before I realized that I had the talent for writing, I wanted to go into astronomy and physics because I thought that was so intriguing, astronomy, but I didn't have the math brain. Because just, oh, oh, I love the way Jupiter looks and Saturn and Earth rings. That ain't going to get you 
in college, you know, saying, oh, I, I like this. I'm a fan of Jupiter. Yeah. I didn't have the, the, the math background to get into trigonometry or calculus, which you need for those heavy sciences. So, yeah, nature is um, it's a wonder, isn't it? It's a, it's yes. A and it reminded me of this other line that I, I wrote down from planting geraniums on Geranium Street. It says they, the geraniums, have seen everything and yet still continue to grow. So that's something about nature too. It's still, I mean, obviously there can be natural disasters. So there's that, but there's something captivating about it. It's always, there's some part of it that's always beautiful. Even after war, after devastation, after humans do horrible things to each other. And there's still the crocuses that come up. There's still the, I mean, the sky right now is brilliant blue um, in Seattle, which is kind of a miracle that we see the sky right now. So, but even that, like it's 70 degrees in Seattle, it made national news, but like, and people, I mean, it's, I don't think 70 is hot, but just, I'm looking out the window, seeing blue sky. It's not like I haven't seen blue sky before, but every time it can be cloudy and rainy for weeks. And then it out comes the sun and the sky again. And it's just, and it's there, it's there. And yeah. And, and here's the thing about nature, which sometimes people, a lot of times people don't get nature really doesn't care about us. It doesn't hate us, but it doesn't love us. It's just there. It has no judgment, no judgment call. And uh, it, it doesn't matter if we, we, we live, it doesn't matter if we die. And I think in a lot, in a way with our human egos that bothers us, you know, like, boy, the, the sun's out because it likes me. No, it doesn't. It's just out because it's out. And so I think the older you get, the more you, you just understand that nature is, it is, it is, it just is. And just to embrace that. And to embrace the fact that, as I said, you know, a few times uh, here, um, how it, for me, reflects art. But it probably doesn't matter what I think. It's like, oh, you think I'm art? All right. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> if you think the sunset is art, fine. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But um, um, that's how I view nature, you know, in, in my world and in my life. We, we are such egocentric creatures sometimes. We take, we take it personally when it's like, it's, that's, it's just a fact. It's just is, and it just is that it's just, it, that it just is. I love that. Um, well, there, uh, there are so many things that we could talk about that I, that I wrote down. So I will just tell uh, readers before, before we wrap up, there are two things I want to talk about. Um, but uh, I will mention too, there's, there's the, 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 the mother relationship, the marriage relationship, the relationships between people where, wherein it, it's appropriate to, to say this or this person or that person cares or doesn't care that um, show up in this book. So um I'm gonna entice readers uh, from that angle. I, uh, the the marriage relationships that 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 was very intriguing. But I want to leave room for for two questions, and then if you would, um, at the end to to close, I would love for you to read a poem. Um, and you you can pick one, or I have one that I that I would I just was totally blown away by and would love to hear it in your voice. But before we get there, first, I would love for you to share, you mentioned this earlier in our interview, um, I'd love for you to share about the workshops you're doing um, in, in Poland about um, on the Ukrainian border. All right. Um, so I am one of seven American, I, I think we're all women, seven American women 
that have been invited to go to Poland this summer will be there for several weeks. And um, we are first landing in Jeshuf. Remember I told you about R-Z-E-S-Z-O-W? That's where we're going to be going first to, to meet. We're going to be traveling all around Poland. This is like a travel slash writing adventure. That's how it's been uh, uh, you know, described. And we are going to be going throughout Poland. Most of these places I've seen in the, you know, nine times I, I nine, ten times I've been to Poland. Uh, most of the other people have not, you know, uh, seen uh, Poland as much as I have or have been there at all. But um, we'll be going to some places that I haven't been to, uh, especially in the in the north, uh, northern part of the country. But we're going to be uh, doing writing sessions and uh, workshopping. And I hope that we will be also uh, um, interfacing with our Polish colleagues, meaning poets, writers, translators, uh, musicians, artists, uh, not all the time, but I hope you know throughout our sojourn, we'll, we'll get to uh, meet some of them. And maybe even some of our Ukrainian colleagues, uh, if we if we can, because so many there are so many Ukrainian refugees that, that now live in Poland, I think over uh, 1.5 million are still there, you know, uh, uh, making a life for themselves, hoping to go back eventually uh, when the war is over. Uh, and I mean, when the war is over in a just way, I meaning, you know, like um, just and honorable for the people who have been invaded. I want them to have their country back, totally, all of it back to them. And so, but there are a lot of Ukrainian refugees that, that are living in Poland. And we're just hoping along the way, we'll be traveling you know, around the country, but we start at that border with Ukraine. That's where we're starting the journey. And um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm a little bit nervous to tell you the truth, because you know, people are saying, well, you know, you're going to be close to a war zone. I understand that, but um, I could not refuse this invitation. I could, because it was by invitation only. I could not refuse uh, the the word where they said we'd, we'd love to have you. And it's yeah. Oh, of course, what an honor that that yeah. It's it's definitely I think um, worth the the risk. I mean, that's one of the one of the things that that writers want to do when they're writing is. Um, is to is to give back one by giving voice to uh, to things that that either don't have a voice or haven't found their voice yet. And I think that this is uh, this is what an incredible opportunity. And um, and I look forward to reading writing about it when you do. We'll, we'll see. I just yeah. hope I'm up to the task. It's like like oh, what a responsibility that you know I'm I'm there and I I better write something good. So, but I I will um, listen to my advice, Linda. Don't take the whole thing on your shoulders. One thing at a time. One page at a time. Yes, page at a Beautiful. time. And if it's if that uh, served you well, I know it served you well in Bone Country so yes. well that um, I'm sure that will work out again. So for our final question before uh, we close, or before I, if you would like to read a poem, um, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish that I would have? Oh, let's see. Um... Uh, we're getting back to the wife-husband relationship about my husband. I dedicate the book to my husband, Tony. And I think the dedication reads, oh, how is it? How do I say? Uh, to Tony, my best traveling companion always. 
And uh, he is in this book too. In, in sometimes in a very direct way, like uh, that one poem, Weightless, when the man and the wife, they're driving through the Alps and they don't know what they're heading into with their little rental car. And it's like these tunnels through the mountains, 20 mile long tunnels. And they're like seeing all these glacier cliffs and he's clutching the steering wheel. And the wife is just like, uh, she's... Um, uh, she is astounded and, you know, she she's just looking out the window, totally uh, immersed in this landscape. But my husband is the best of the best of the best. And anyone listening to this podcast who's ever met him, um, he's a big hit in Poland. My relatives love him. Oh, Tony, Tony. They, they love him. Uh, he's a big hit. Um, I mean, he has met some of the world famous authors because for the contemporary writer series, I found along with my husband, Tony, you know, we've had, you know, Seamus Heaney come in and Michael Adanche and Naomi Shiavnai and Lee Young Lee and, and Joy Harjo and everyone loves Tony. I mean, they like me, but Tony is like such a, a dear, dear heart. I, I'm a dear heart too, but he is just a marvelous, marvelous companion and not only the best husband, but such my best friend. So he, because of him, uh, I had the courage to travel. He's the one that says, let's go. And and when I'm going to be in Poland, I, I found out recently that I won an award back in Ireland. Remember last year, we're on, for, on the other side of the world, that one piece, won second prize in Fish Anthologies International Flash Fiction Contest. So um, I entered again, not with any piece from Bone Country. It had to be new and unpublished. So I entered another piece this year and it it didn't win second prize but it's one of the top 10 and they always invite the top 10 winners to come and give a reading at west cork literary festival this is what my husband did so he said now linda we're going to be in europe anyway when are you done when are you done with all your uh, creative writing work in poland i said oh around july 8th he says all right uh, I already made reservations. We fly out of Krakow to Cork, Ireland on July 9. The party for you, the, the ceremony, the big, you know, uh, award-winning party is July 10th. July 11th is your reading at the West Cork Literary Festival. And then July 12th, we just fly back to Krakow to see family and friends for the, the, the last four days of our trip there. He planned that all without me even second-guessing it. He said, we could do this. So he, you, you didn't ask about Tony, but Tony is my, 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 what can I say? My sentinel, my guardian, my uh, advocate. Uh, he would say, I'm your personal assistant, which is true. He's retired. But I don't know um, what I did when he was still working. But uh, he has just been above and beyond the call of duty, my best of the best of the best. So that's the only thing I would say that because he, it's the whole book is dedicated to dedicated to him. And now you know why, because he was with me on every step of that journey. I love that. I love that so much. That's so, so sweet and so, so inspiring, too, that that uh this this is that 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 you can have this best friend this champion this someone who believes in in you and your writing enough to like become part of it with you yeah, i love that and uh we will be met we will celebrate our 50th anniversary next year 
so that's another little PS. So and now everybody cool. knows how old I am. So. <laughs> but it's also, I mean, that's that that doesn't happen. That's that's rare at this point. I think it's so rare. Um, yeah, my my parents will celebrate fifty years in twenty twenty five. But otherwise, I don't. I don't know too many people and they still like each other. I mean, I know. So that's, the thing. that's the thing. It's not just loving someone, but liking them. Just yes, really liking, liking them. them. There is a difference. Yeah. Loving, oh, yeah. liking. <laughs> there is a difference for sure. That was so sweet. I love that you shared that. Um, oh, you're welcome. And uh, yes, thank you. And thanks to Tony for being, yeah. um, being so, so in involved in this collection yeah. and in, and in your, he's, he's in the book too. Yeah. Sometimes a silent partner, but he's there. Yes. Yes. Thank you to Tony for, for, for making this book what it is too, since it has, since he's, he is there. And I, um, you, when, when you, when you read it, you will, you will feel that presence, I think, uh, especially now, now that you know to look for it. So to close, um, is there, is there a poem you, you like to read or is there, cause I've, I don't need to pick it for you. I just was like, oh, this yeah. is the author. Yeah, there, is, there is a poem I'd like to read. Okay. I, I have uh, referenced it before, but uh, okay. I was curious, uh, uh, what is the one that you were thinking of, uh, Heather? Just um, It was Arriving at the Train Station, the last place I saw Laura alive. That one was so haunting and beautiful. And I just loved it, but I always let uh, I always let my my guests pick the one they want to read, so I'm not dictating what what to do. Um, but if, yeah, if you have one you'd like to share, yeah. I would and, love and, to hear. And that resonates too because it's about my very best friend from graduate school. We went through the MFA program together at a college in Vermont, and um, she was a year a year behind me. So I graduated in '79. That uh, 1979 she graduated I think in 80 and she was from um she had an interesting arc in her life uh she was a Mexican Jew born in Mexico City her parents were Americans but they were expats they lived in Mexico for a while but she came from a very wealthy family servants like eight servants uh and uh then they moved back to California Northern California where her parents settled and she was very close to her father who is very wealthy but when he died young of a cancer he was only in his late 50s early 60s he didn't write a will and my friend did not get along with her mother and my friend got nothing so she went from very wealthy you know uh status you know uh uh, uh style of living to when I saw her in um, uh, near LA uh, at one point, she had to work three jobs, uh, coffee house, bookstore, and cleaning people's homes when she had eight servants when she was growing up. And then I had lost uh, touch with her. And um, I started getting letters from Ambassador and Mrs. Anthony von Dongen from like uh, the embassy in Stockholm, uh, Sweden. And it was her. She married. What happened was um, after being in debt for so long, she decided to go back to graduate school, this time in law. She went to NYU for international law, got a job at um, uh, the 
UN headquarters, the main headquarters in Geneva, Switzerland, met this diplomat, got married, and then he became the the uh, Dutch the uh, uh, yeah, the Dutch ambassador to Sweden. You know, he was uh, he was from the Netherlands, but he was like their ambassador to Sweden. And then he was transferred to Vienna and um, uh, uh, Brussels. And so when last I saw her and I'm going to read that poem, that's the poem driving at the train station because of this, you know, this backstory. I got to read it for the right. for your audience. Right. <laughs> but um, when I saw her in 1984, I was pregnant for my daughter. So this was in spring of 1984. I saw her in LA when she was, you know, cleaning homes. And then the next time I saw her was July of 2010. Do the math, folks. 1984 to 2010, when I met her in Vienna, she met us at the airport in Vienna when we visited her and her ambassador husband. And then uh, a year later, no, six months later, after we had seen her, she was diagnosed with leukemia and died she was only like 57, 58 when she died because we saw her in July of 2010 and by July of 2012, she was gone. So why don't I read this poem that is about the last time uh, I saw her and uh, we were taking the train from Vienna to Prague in one of our many, uh, many pre-COVID travels. And um, this is about Lara and she's even in the title. So I'll end with this. Arriving at the train station, the last place I saw Lara alive. It looks the same, but it doesn't. Death clouds the eyes, not with tears, but with the fog that comes with loss. You can see the train flat platform still there in the center of Vienna, in the center of Europe. But the faces are different, hers gone. Look, she was young, younger than me in her yellow linen dress, the color of a muted Viennese sun and her fashionable white hat. Her husband, the distracted older man, was standing with her on the platform waving goodbye. That was then, years ago, when she could still lift her arm in welcome or farewell. Now, no trace of our embrace at the station. The sleeveless summer dress, the pale arms, the spacious apartment she slept in on the street where a deaf Beethoven composed his last symphony. Now it's vacant and empty, all part of memory's passing blur. The train arrives, the train departs, the city remains. Only the faces have changed. Her husband has moved on to another station, and I, the friend left behind, I too have moved on, the passenger lost in fog. Well, that is just a taste of the depth of experience, of emotion, of scenery, of that world that readers will get in Bone Country collection of prose poems, uh, which we have been talking about this hour. And so I will be linking all um, 
the you, where you can get Bone Country as well as Linda's other writings um, and her website for you in the show notes below. Um, and uh, I'm sure, I mean, as I say, <laughs> we could talk for so, so much longer, but um, I don't want to spoil Bone Country for everyone. <laughs> but, so. uh, let, let me tell yeah. you, Megan, this has been a wonderful conversation. One of the finest conversations I've had about my work. You are such a careful reader. I know you're a careful writer. I've seen some of your work. It's superb. It's excellent. And it was a delight and an honor to be your guest today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Linda. I so enjoyed this as well. And I am so excited to uh, to share Bone Country uh, with readers. So look for that. And um, it is out with Cornerstone Press now. So look for that in the show notes. And we will see you next time um, at the Poetry People and Things channel. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Megan. Bye-bye.